Did American Pharaoh winning the Triple Crown three years ago save racing? Will Justify's win this year save racing? What does save racing mean anyway? More realistically, what effect have the two recent Triple Crown winners actually had on the sport? We'll attack that question from a number of angles next here on In the Gate. They're in the gates. They're about to move in. Way roll silence. And they're off. As they move to the top of the stretch. It's a hit-bombing finish. This is In the Gate, ESPN's Thoroughbred Racing Podcast. My name is Barry Abrams. You can follow me on Twitter at B. Abrams Voice or on Facebook at Barry Abrams Voice. You can also get us on our YouTube channel by searching In the Gate Podcast. You can get us on SoundCloud as well. Get us at the iTunes Store or TuneIn.com. You can get us on that little pink podcatcher app on your phone you didn't even know you had. And now you can subscribe to In the Gate in the Listen tab of the ESPN app. For the full In The Gate experience, subscribe now in the Listen tab of the ESPN app. Justify comes roaring home to a raucous Belmont Park with one furlong to run. Gronkowski and Hofburg trying to run him down. Vito Rosso is fourth, a sixteenth to go. Justify is still there. Justify from Gronkowski. He's just perfect. And now he's just immortal. Justify is the thirteenth triple What did Justify's Triple Crown win mean to you? Did it mean anything? Maybe you're in the racing business, either a track operator or a breeder. What did Justify's win mean to you? Maybe you're in the media business, and you look at the TV ratings for Justify's Belmont win, a third lower than American Pharaoh's back in 2015, and you say, See? The doomsayers were right. The sport is dying. Maybe you're someone who's thought about getting involved in racing and you just needed something to motivate you. Did American Pharaoh move you to pick up that phone or computer? Did Justify? There are a number of ways to measure progress, so we're going to approach what I like to call the Pharaoh effect from a few different standpoints. The bottom line business of racing, television ratings, and individuals getting involved in the sport. To do that, we've got a pretty eclectic but very appropriate team of experts to tackle this topic. First, we have the erstwhile Matt Hegarty of the Daily Racing Forum, who covers many off-the-track issues of the sport. We have New York Newsday sports TV critic Neil Best to give us the television perspective. And for the involvement angle, we have Jeff Madey of Canterbury Park in Shakopee, Minnesota, the first track to offer the so-called Racing Club ownership option, which allows people with more modest incomes a chance to get involved. And thank you all so much for being here today. Let's start with Matt Hegarty. When American Pharoah won the Triple Crown back in 2015, I kept getting asked by casual observers, will American Pharoah save racing? How do you assess a question like that? Well, one, I don't think racing necessarily needs to be saved. Uh, it has a core group of people that are that are very dedicated to the game, and it's benefiting from some technology that is keeping some high-rolling customers in the game. And at the same time, uh, I don't think one horse can turn back the clock to racing's heyday. That's just not going to happen. And I don't think we saw that happen here Um if you look at the metrics after the 2015 Derby, you did see, you know, a slight decline in wagering get reversed to a slight gain, but you didn't see any 
uh, uptick in television ratings for the Derby. In fact, the year after that, the Derby ratings declined, I think, 12%. Um, so if there was some sort of resurgence in interest in racing, I think that's the first place it would have showed up in the Kentucky Derby um, uh, television ratings, and, and that just was not the case. Well, we talk about ratings, and that's why we have Neil Best of New York Newsday here. One of the main ways, of course, we measure progress in the sports industry is through television ratings. Now, the apples-to-apples comparison, Neil, of course, is that the TV rating for the Belmont Stakes won by Justify this year to complete the Triple Crown was a third lower than that for American Pharaoh's Belmont. So what do you make of numbers like that? Well, I mean, you know, NBC was actually very creative in the way they reported that number. And it was actually sort of interesting where they looked at the 04 and 07 World Series to sort of the comparison being the Red Sox had waited all those years to win a World Series. They finally did. Three years later, it happened again. You know, so they were trying to measure the, the drop in enthusiasm. And actually, the numbers were very similar. So, you know, obviously, that was to be expected. But, of course, it was higher than a Belmont without a triple crown at stake. I mean, I... You know, to go back to your earlier question, the good news for horse racing or boxing or even one could argue something like hockey, you know, anything other than the NFL at this point is a niche sport in a way, but because of the the state of modern technology and, and just the way things are delivered and audiences are so fractured, you know, there, there's a place for everyone now where the avid fans can go. And so horse racing obviously will not be what it was, nor will baseball for that matter but you know it doesn't matter anymore now that everybody's got a place to go to follow the sports that they like one of the other ways to look at this reminds me of when i was asked about what effect american pharaoh might realistically have i said that while one horse cannot save a sport as matt alluded to that some people who watch that event might be motivated to get involved in the sport And so since 2015, I think you've seen partnerships grow in buying horses. We saw that with this year's Triple Crown winner, Justify, who has over 50 owners. But you also see it at a moderate level with so-called racing clubs. The first one began at Canterbury Downs in Minnesota. And it so happens we have Jeff Madej here with us. So give us a sense of how that idea came about and how it works. Well, I appreciate you asking that question. I, I've been involved in racing for, I guess, uh, 25 years now at, at Canterbury, and people would ask, well, how do I get into the game? How do I own a racehorse? And there really weren't any resources available to send someone to the racing commission, for example, is kind of a dead end. That Their job is not to recruit owners. Their job is to license owners. So what I decided to do was to try to create a very low level club uh, as far as cost goes. And in, in, in our club members pay $250 to join this year, we've got close to 200 members. They all own a piece of two horses. And this is how I started it back then. And, and we do all of our communication through face to face on race day, but emails, we have a blog for our club. So it's all kind of electronic communication. It's not 200 people going back to a stable and, and invading a, a trainer's stable in that method. So that, that was a great way to make it work. When I first took it to the boss, he thought, well, this is nuts. You can't have all these people wandering around in a stable area of a racetrack that have never been there. There's, there's too many safety issues and whatnot involved. And you know, trainers have a, a bunch of other horses they need to take care of. So we got around it with that method, got people in at this low level of ownership, and we're still doing it today. But I have seen some of these owners then go on to form either their own partnerships or even own horses on their own. So it was kind of an introductory method 
to show them what the costs are and also what the enjoyment factor is in owning a racehorse. Now, do you think anybody at Canterbury, your team who started the racing club or the people who signed up, had American Pharaoh on their minds? Well, I think, you know, back then, this was 2009 when I first started it. So, but, you know, you did see when the movie Seabiscuit and the book Seabiscuit came out, there was kind of that, a little surge, at least I feel it here. And maybe I work in a, in my own vacuum here at, at Canterbury Park in Shakopee, Minnesota, where we still have a pretty strong fan base. We average close to 7,000 people a race day, which in this industry is pretty good. So that we saw that little surge where people were interested in it. I don't know that it translated to wagering. A lot of them were tire kickers that came out to the racetrack to see what was going on. But the racing club did allow that to kind of to kind of grow. And I think we could, I did introduce people who had never been to the track, became members through different marketing, especially now online marketing. We got some very very novice individuals involved in racing. They bring their family, they bring their friends. It's it's cool to say I own part of a racehorse, and also in the process learn what goes into that. So as far as American Pharaoh goes, yeah, I, I, and again, this is my, I base it on what I witness at Canterbury Park, where we have a very young crowd and a lot of families. I do see new people come to the racetrack because of these things where they, they recognize racing and they say, this is, this is cool. They come out maybe to watch the Derby, to watch American Pharaoh win the Kentucky Derby, win the Triple Crown eventually, and they come back for another live race day. So, well, some of the national numbers might not suggest that there is a great ripple effect. I, I think I do see it somewhat here. You know, to me, you know, it's sort of along those lines. The, the Look, I, I grew up in the 70s where you had three Triple Crown winners that kind of got young people involved, and I, you know, the first race I ever bet on was $10 on Alidar in the 78 Belmont, which I'm still mad about, <laughs> uh, but that got me interested, and I assume there's a whole other generation now of people who are casual at best fans of the game, and they've seen Farrow and Justify, and if you're a 15-year-old sports fan or a 25-year-old sports fan, you know, maybe you weren't paying attention and you kind of got caught up in the excitement. And now this is something that at least it's on your, at the very least, it's on your radar now. I, I agree with, with both of those guys. You know, I don't think it's measurable right now, but I think you do have a lot of goodwill out there that, that got generated by American Pharaoh's win, that people's perception of the sport may have changed a little bit or, may, or they may have even, you know, become aware of the sport a little bit because of so much, you know, hype surrounding it. So I think there is a spillover effect, especially considering that, the you know, the decade before American Pharaoh, the media was not, was not in racing's corner. You know, mainstream media had a field day beating racing up and for good reason most of the time. So I think it did reverse kind of years of negative coverage that, that was turning a lot of people off. We're going to take a short break here on In the Gate, but when we continue with this discussion, if some is good, is more better? Are two Triple Crown winners in three years worth a bump for the sport? We'll tackle that when we come back. Welcome back to the In the Gate podcast. I want to get back with this discussion by talking with Matt Hegarty. You know, the number of races run in the U.S. is down from a few years ago, but the overall handle, the amount of money bet, has stayed relatively even. That, to me, would indicate in part that big loaded days generate big handle rather than spreading the races out. So what role do you think horses like American Pharaoh and now Justify play in motivating people to attend these big days? 
you know, you will see anytime you do have a superstar horse. If you remember, American Farrell uh, had a workout before the Traverse in 2015. And, you know, I think the numbers were a little inflated, but I think they said 15,000 people showed up to, to see it. You know, Haskell uh, for Monmouth Park was packed that year when American Pharaoh showed up. It translates into, you know, big gate numbers. Then you do the wagering figures and you do see, you know, maybe a 20 or, or $30, $30 person is attending on those days. You know, they're not big gamblers, but there are a lot of people. And that, that I think the best thing for the sport revolving around something like that is the way the sport is presented on television. No one likes to watch a sporting event that no one is at. Uh, it makes the sport look like a loser. When you have horses like American Pharaoh and Justify to some extent, I think the popularity of that horse is, is well below what American Pharaoh's was. The, you, you do at least have that, that image of the sport as being a thriving sport. And it, for someone who spends three weeks in Saratoga every year, it looks like a thriving sport when you're at Saratoga on any day of the week. Uh, Barry, I, I, you've been up there. I think you know what I'm talking about. So, I love the place, but here's the thing. Jeff Madey, we're going to get to the television part of what Matt said in a moment with Neil, but Jeff Madey of Canterbury Downs, you know, many of our listeners, if they followed our podcast, and I hope they have, understand that racing is a decentralized sport when it comes to marketing and filling the place as Matt says, there's no single voice like the NCAA or the NFL to market this sport. The National Thoroughbred Racing Association comes the closest, but it's not the same. So what is your approach at Canterbury to keep the momentum of the attention the sport received this spring? You know, when you try to sell your product, not just the racing club, but attending as spectators as well. Well, we do try to emphasize the excitement of the game. Now, we'll we'll do a lot of things that are are outside of racing to introduce people. And for example, we'll have you know, and it's popular. It seems crazy, but corgi racing. Well, we'll get twenty two thousand people here on a, for for that. And without that, we might have you know on a, on a nice Saturday like that, uh, ten thousand people. So, but it introduces people to the sport that maybe have not seen horse racing before. And I, I think that's important. It, Get them in the door, but then also show them the fun and excitement of racing and, and treat them well. I mean, that's something I think that racing maybe in the past did not do. They took, they took their customers for granted. And, and I can say in this market for sure, when Canterbury Downs first opened, and now we're Canterbury Park, but when Canterbury Downs opened, there was no competition. Now we've got the largest casino three miles down the road, the largest casino uh, in the Midwest, three, di- three doors down the road. And I always tell this, this story. I worked on the backside back in 1991, and I would bring horses over to race every day. And that was the year that they introduced slot machines to Mystic Lake Casino. And I could, I'd look up in the grandstand every Saturday as I'm leading the horse over, and there were fewer and fewer and fewer people sitting in the grandstand every weekend until you know, the track closed the follow- after the following year. And that, I think, was kind of the mindset is that we've got these people, they have nowhere to go. Let's get them in here, charge them for everything we can, and, you know, hope they come back because they, we know they will. This is the only gambling game in town. Well, that went away. And I think we realized when we reopened that we need to get families here. We need to reintroduce the game to people in the right way, make sure that they have a good time and they're willing to come back. So that is the way that we market it. But I also will add this is that, and this point was brought up earlier, the way people now consume the sport. Internet wagering changed everything. We just recently licensed in Minnesota ADWs. Before they were technically illegal, yet everyone was using them. And now we get reports from the licensed ADWs about how much is being wagered. And the wagering level really hasn't gone down 
statewide. It's gone down at the track, but not statewide. So those fans are still out there. They just find a different way to consume it. But when we have a big, and this is another point that was just made, I think, by Matt, is that when there's a big horse running, and in simulcast, we don't get a lot of the big horses at Canterbury, certainly, but I'll see people that I haven't seen for months and months, and I think, well, yeah, they're still in this game, but they come out on those exciting days because they know there's going to be a crowd there as well. So I think all the points that were made earlier are very important, but taking care of the fan once you do get him in here cannot be lost by racetrack uh, people in the racetrack industry. Now, Neil Best of Newsday, you know, you were talking earlier about everything being niche nowadays, and I think this leads right into right into what I want to ask from what Jeff just mentioned. You know, with most sports, the content is king. You know, watching a football game, basketball game, you care about the storyline narrative of what happens in the game in and of itself and the stats that come out of it and such. But with racing, in many ways, it's more about betting than the content itself. So what role do you think that racing on broadcast television serves? Uh, By the way, after a 25-year cooling-off period after the 78 Belmont, I did have a funny side in the 03 Derby, so I I, 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 I made my triumphant return to betting. Anyway, that's an aside. (laughs) Look, first of all, I think NBC, you know, is one of the most important friends that racing can have because obviously it's in our best interest to promote everything about the game, the stories and the, you know, everything because they they own it basically the big races and and I think they've done a pretty good job of trying to um, trying to help, uh, much like they've done with hockey. However, you know, yeah, I mean, to me particularly because the legalized betting on sporting events is about to spread, you know, rapidly around the country. That's just another reason why. As a, as a television property or in person, I suppose, horse racing has to be about more than betting or it's just not going to work because now people can go to Mammoth Racetrack today and ignore the horse race and bet on the Yankees game if they feel like it. So the role that the non-gambling part of the game plays has to be part of the narrative or else you're just not going to get new fans. So, you know, kids like horses, go watch the pretty horses. And then as you become more sophisticated, you can appreciate the game beyond just looking at pretty horses. And, you know, there are other things that that sport has to offer and it's going to have to try to leverage that. Well, in 2011, Neil, there was a study done by the famed consulting firm McKinsey and Company And they concluded, among other things, that more racing needs to be available on broadcast television. That year, 2011, 43 hours of national TV. In the past two years, NBC's expanded its Triple Crown coverage and its Breeders' Cup prep schedule through the summer and fall. And, of course, added coverage of the recent Royal Ascot meet. So what effect, if any, do you think this added coverage has had in regard to the sport's popularity? Or are you talking about the broadcast NBC, or are you including NBCSN? Because, you know, obviously all, all of these sports have to live primarily, other than the NFL, have to live primarily on, you know, you know on the non-broadcast channel. So, um, yeah, I mean, obviously it's sort of a chicken and egg thing. I mean, NBC doesn't want to show too much if people aren't watching it, but on the other hand, the more you show, the more people are going to watch. So that, that's a debate with a lot of these kinds of, you know, non-NFL sports. Um, but you know, and, and and NBC again has a has an incentive to try to grow new fans, and I think that you have to be patient with it and uh, and give people as many reasons as you can to be interested. And obviously, I mean, I know this is a very old, age-old problem in horse racing, but obviously, if you had stars who 
continued racing after the Triple Crown year, you would have a better shot at developing stars, but I understand the economics make that difficult. Now, Matt Hegarty, during the lead-up to Justify's Triple Crown win, and we started to allude to this earlier, I had a lot of casual sports fans tell me, been there, done that with the Triple Crown experience. And the ratings for the Belmont, as we mentioned with Neil, would bear that out. However, in the next breath, as I think you made the point, we celebrate the three Triple Crown winners of the 1970s, Secretariat, Seattle Slough, and Affirmed. So you can't have it both ways, can you? I mean, what do you think the pair of Triple Crowns, Justify and American Pharaoh, will mean for this sport overall? That's, man, that's a, that's a really tough question. I don't know what effect it's going to be. Now, I did not believe that there was going to be a big business impact from American Pharaoh's Triple Crown, and there hasn't been. I think it is a continuing reason for people to, to watch the Triple Crown races, the people who wouldn't normally watch horse racing. It's a reason every year for people to watch the Derby. We've found that these things are rather complex as far as which horses grab uh, people's attention. Uh, in the case of Justify, I just, he didn't have enough time and he wasn't flamboyant enough or something. This horse just did not capture the, the public's attention in the way that other horses have. And I think that is uh, due in some small way to American Pharaoh finally, you know, finally winning a Triple Crown. So I think some people were definitely on the fence and because they had seen American Pharaoh do it, you know, three years earlier, they said, uh, you know what, I, I got other things I can do today. So, Jeff Madej, beyond just a couple of bumps in attendance wherever Justify might run next, what effect do you think his victory will have on the sport in general and on your track and racing club specifically? I, I do tend to agree with what Matt said. I, I, and I think industry leaders felt the same thing. I know we had that discussion internally with, you know, what, what do we expect on Belmont Day with Justify? And I think the consensus was it's the excitement level is not the same as it was with American Pharaoh. It's so many close calls and so many young people. I think I'll include my kids in there and they, they have followed me through the industry for a long time. And, you know, the excitement leading up to the potential of a triple crown winner. And, and I often argued earlier, to be honest with you, that maybe we don't want American Pharaoh to win the triple crown. Maybe we want to keep having uh, you know, a derby winner and a Preakness winner and just keep bringing people in for a big Belmont day. And I, I think the argument could be made for that as well. So I think the jury is still out here as to exactly what the effect is going to be. Um, I think that you are correct with with we need to focus on some television coverage we need to keep we need and i'm a pr person we need to keep getting good stories and fighting for space in the newspapers and that and i know that sounds like an impossible task but we need to keep racing on as much as we can on the forefront maybe it's not always the horse maybe it's the human interest story but though and, and get creative with the way we sell the sport because i think if you can get people at least get eyes on it the casual eyes they will come to the racetrack and some of them will turn into gamblers into better which we obviously need as well, but I, I think it takes a, it takes an effort, and it's it's easy to say, well, you know, no one's going to cover the sport, and then let that happen, as opposed to saying we're going to find ways to get reporters to cover the sport, and that's always been my. That's been my approach is that I, every day I'm pitching a story to somebody and I fail most of the time, but when I succeed, I, I see that it's it's well worth my time. Well, Neil, you're on the other side of that. How do you view what he just said? Well, it's a, look. I mean, it's a, it's a challenge, particularly. I mean, I'm in the newspaper business. Talk about old school. I mean, and 
And, you know, we, we have less resources than we used to. So even in a traditional horse racing town like New York, I mean, convincing editors to send someone out except to cover the Belmont is, is a challenge. So, you know, you're talking about it just a – I guess I go back to boxing a little bit just because of the similar trajectory of popularity, I guess. But that sport, I think, has done a pretty good job of adapting to the modern media universe and just forgetting about having, you know, Newsday send someone every heavyweight bout, and but they have a, a passionate niche kind of following, and it, and that's fine. And I think that's what horse racing should aspire to, because getting my editor to send someone to anything other than the Triple Crown races is, is just very difficult. Well, it's a topic that is probably going to keep coming up, especially if Justify continues to run this year, and hope we've given you all something to think about. So thank you, gentlemen, so, so much as we continue to move forward through a year with a Triple Crown winner. Thanks, Barry. Thank you. Great, appreciate it. Our thanks again to Neil Best, Jeff Madey, and Matt Hegarty. Perhaps you saw the scene from Royal Ascot on TV, the queen arriving in her horse-drawn coach, Well, I was there on day one, and it's like nowhere else in the world, but I can't say the event is without reproach. It was incredible that each and every person walking around was impeccably outfitted to the nines, but when it came to find their seats, the beautiful people didn't need to look for directional arrows or signs. You see, there weren't very many seats in the grandstand at all, not even in the section labeled Royal. Even there, most patrons weren't allowed access to the upstairs boxes, so they sat on towels draped across the soil. The grandstand walkways looked like a cruise ship, incredibly sumptuous, and I don't mean places you couldn't go. But if you ever experience Ascot, don't expect to have a seat. You'll need to get creative to enjoy the show. You can get us on our YouTube channel by searching In The Gate Podcast. You can get us on SoundCloud as well. Get us at the iTunes store or TuneIn.com. You can get us on that little pink podcatcher app on your phone you didn't even know you had. And now you can subscribe to In The Gate in the Listen tab of the ESPN app. For the full In The Gate experience, subscribe now in the Listen tab of the ESPN app. And you can follow me on Twitter at B. Abrams Voice or on Facebook at Barry Abrams Voice. That's In The Gate for this week. I'm Barry Abrams. We'll see you next time.